What is it that really moves you? Really causes strong reactions or emotions in you that evokes like a, a visceral response? What gets you mad? Gets you saying things out loud or posting online or complaining to somebody else? Or maybe even breaks your heart, makes you angry. You ever yell at the television? Throw a paper, a magazine, electronic device? What does that for you? Injustice? Lawlessness? Is it personal things or is it more collective and global things? Liberal politics? Is that what you meant? Conservative politics? Is that what you meant? Okay, too personal, I know. How about sports? Did I get you mad? I'm a suffering Cubs fan. I was yelling at the television. My wife's like, are you really as upset as you sound? 1969, all over again, they broke my heart as a little boy, and you did it again. Why do I get so fanatical about sports and yell at the television? Do I do that when I see injustice, crime, abuse, terror on the news? Or do I only really get moved when there's something that affects me personally? Do we ever get heated over people lost in their own sin and circumstances and making stupid choices that hurt themselves and hurt other people? Does that move us? Or maybe none of this stuff is supposed to move us at all. We're supposed to have, you know, the British approach to life, right? Be calm and keep going. I mean, after all, last week, that's what I said, peace, right? But there's something in Jesus' example that contradicts that approach and likely convicts us regarding what should really move us. Surprise, surprise, it's not about sports. And it's not as much about us as we may think. There's a word that shows up a lot of times in the life of Jesus. It's this word, compassion. It is exclusively used by or in description of Jesus himself, and it is a violent word. His heart contracted convulsively. That's exactly what happens, what it means. So let me just walk through the times that we see that happen in the New Testament. They're listed in your outline. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is traveling around. He's looking, he's teaching, he's healing. He has his heart contract convulsively because people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew chapter 14, he sees a large crowd and his heart contracts convulsively because they're sick, so he heals them. Matthew 18, Jesus is recounting a parable of a master who has a servant with a great debt, and the servant comes and begs him for time. Not for forgiveness, just time. And the master's heart contracts convulsively, and he forgives the debt. It's interesting that that same master has the exact opposite emotion of anger towards the servant when he refuses to go and forgive the debt of another. So the passion goes both ways on this. <clears throat> 
Matthew chapter 22, blind men cry out to Jesus begging for their sight and his heart contracts convulsively because they're infirmed, they're handicapped, they're needy. Mark chapter 1, there's a leper that cries out to Jesus and he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And his heart contracts convulsively. And he says, I am willing. And he heals him because he's a societal pariah. He's an outcast. He's marginalized. In Mark chapter 6 and in Mark chapter 8, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the 4,000 in both times because they're hungry. They haven't eaten for three days, so his heart contracts convulsively. He has compassion for them. Luke chapter 17, uh, Luke chapter 7, he's, a, he's approaching a city called Nain. And out of the city comes the body of a small boy being carried to be buried. And behind is his widowed mother. And his heart contracts convulsively. Wow, well, man, this was the worst. This was like a death sentence for a woman at the time because her husband's dead and her only son is dead. She'd be destitute. So he has compassion. He raises the son from the dead. Unspeakable loss. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus describes this same kind of compassion with the Good Samaritan. Then he sees, when he sees the Jew laying by the side of the road, beaten and bloody, his heart contracts convulsively. And then in Luke chapter 15, Jesus again attributes this same very prodigal emotion to the father of the wayward son who sees him at a great distance when he's returning and his heart contracts convulsively. He has compassion because of the repentance and the brokenness. What really evoked strong emotion in Jesus? What moved Jesus? The harassed and the helpless, those who were sick. The indebted, the hungry, the mourning, the abused, the outcast, the marginalized, the repentant, and the broken. Is that you? Is that us? Are we really evoked by these things, people things? Or are they just personal, secondary, and silly things that really move us? Now, I'm not just trying to manipulate you into some kind of emotional response, and I'm not trying to make you feel guilty and feel bad about yourself. There really is an important point here that fits with all that we have been looking at this fall. Matthew chapter 9. See if you can hear these three things that we've been saying this fall, that God starts, God shows, God sends. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, his heart contracted convulsively because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Such a familiar passage. Do you see what we've been looking at? God starts with a promise of a son, and that son has arrived. And he's literally walking around, teaching and caring and seeing, filled with compassion, touching and healing. God fulfills his promise. God starts with a promise, and then God shows. God shows through this son what it is to see people the way God sees 
people. Filled with compassion. And then God sends. That same son says to his disciples, ask, there's the prayer, ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest field. And here we have the prayer and the purpose that we talked about last week. God sends. He doesn't just say go. Sending is about knowing that he is present, that he's come, that we're under his orders, and that he is at work and we happen to be joining him. Prayer that starts so that we can find our purpose. That's why we prayed last time, three, three times, so that we would see how essential that is. Technique is important. That's why we've created this little tool, because I want you to have things in mind so that you're ready to speak when the time comes. But do not underestimate the power of what we need to do first. We need to pray. We can relax in the technique so that we know it, but we make prayer our work. Do so, and you will be ready for the conversations. You will see things unfold because God wants those people to become disciples of His, just like you are, more than you ever will. And as we pray, we will see His hand working and know how to enter into those conversations. So what more could there be? What more could there be in the unfolding of this plan? Well, it's just as plain on the nose of your face, and so I want to make sure that we don't miss this as a part of the plan. Because it's so easy for us to miss it and to drift away from us from it. God sends us to people. And the goal is all people. We exist to touch all people with God's message. And that means a couple of very obvious things that we can conclude that we should have, based upon Jesus' showing, we should have compassion for people and we should be in conversation with people. What is compassion's place in it all? So just a few observations about this concept of compassion. Because I think we wonder about this. We have deep-seated feelings that happen and they pass and we know our feelings come and go. We think that people do things out of emotional motives that may be not pure and right. What is compassion's role in it all? So a few observations that I'd like to make. Compassion is about people. It's not about things. This is about people. And what has to do with people should evoke strong feelings within us. It really should. Because... That's what God cares about. Not sports, not personal political preferences, but what affects people. So do a personal evaluation on what moves you. Ask your spouse, ask a friend, ask someone who's near you. When, uh, when you get upset about something, to just let you know that you're upset, and then ask yourself whether that was about something worth getting upset about or not. Let's have somebody say, okay, okay, you're yelling at the TV. Why are you yelling at the TV now? Because the Mets are killing the Cubs again. How much does that matter? And we flip on the news and we're sick and tired of seeing these things, so I think I'd rather switch to ESPN. What really should move you should be things that have to do with people. If it's more about stuff and things, then return to the prayer factor. You see, 
when Jesus is moved with compassion, he looks at his disciples and he doesn't say, go. He doesn't even send them yet. He says, pray. Because they don't see it the way he sees it yet. And they need to have their eyes open. So, so with us. Start praying. If we don't see things the way he does, we need to be praying about, Lord, help me see things the way you see things. Because pe- compassion is about people. It's not about things. Compassion is about grace and not math. And I'm really glad for that, as you know. Compassion is not about a number in a mathematical equation. So here's what I mean. Where one effort equals or ends up with a determined result. We don't measure compassion's effect in net results. Jesus healed and he taught and he fed and he wept and he cared and he healed many people. How many of those people became true followers of Jesus Christ? As we read the story, we find very, very few, at least initially. We're not talking about numbers, we're talking about people. And so don't turn your compassion into some kind of mathematic equation that says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to do this, buddy. If they don't respond the way I want them to, then I'm not going to do this anymore. See, that's what we do in our most noble moments. We'll step out and do something only to be offended or disappointed or disgusted because that person doesn't appreciate what I've done. That's normal. Even Jesus, uh, when he healed the ten lepers and only one came back to him, he said, where are the rest? <laughs> right? I mean, he, he wanted everyone to respond to his compassion. But that did not keep him from failing to act on his compassion because other people don't respond the way they wanted him to. Let's consider the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross divinely intended in its extravagant, profuse, abundant provision of grace and mercy to all of mankind for the salvation from their sin. Did you follow that? The blood of Jesus Christ, divinely intended to be extravagantly, profusely, overabundantly providing grace and mercy to all of mankind for the salvation of their sins. Will every person in mankind find forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ? No. Only those who will respond to that act of grace. Well, isn't that a waste? Would you dare to tell Jesus that he wasted his blood? It's an act of compassion. It's not a math equation. Now, I do want to do a little math. So that'll get you entertained here. Let's do a little math. How much does it take to evoke God's compassion? Is it possible to measure how much repentance on our part will bring about the compassion of God? Does it take a pound? A gallon? A cup? An inch? I mean, how do we even measure it? How about this? One step. That passage in Luke chapter 15 of the wayward son. 
and the father that stands at the gate every day longing to see his son return. The passage says this, while he, this son, was still a long way off, his father saw him. And guess what happened? His heart contracted convulsively and he ran to the son. So how much does it take? takes one step. One step. And God runs. Isn't that amazing? All it takes is that, that one little turn. We in all of our waywardness, we, we distance ourselves, we walk away, we recognize, we realize it. Like the sun, we're like, oh, I do not deserve this. But I know that's where forgiveness lies. So, so I'll turn. And God runs! Look at that. You take one little step, and God beats a path to you. Isn't that amazing? See, compassion is about grace. It's not about math. It's about people. It's not about things. And compassion, this is important, compassion is an impetus. It's not the answer. Other than the act of redemption on the cross and Jesus rising from the grave, Jesus' other acts didn't, of compassion, didn't solve the ultimate problem. For some of us, we dismiss being compassionate for that very reason. Well, that's not really addressing the real issue. Well, compassion is what led him to continue to pursue and follow through to the ultimate solution. In John chapter 12, he said, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Should I not act in compassion towards these people? No, this is the reason I came. And then later he's able to say on the cross, It is finished. So don't dismiss compassion. Channel it. It's not the answer. It's the reminder that keeps us seeing beyond ourselves and moving towards the ultimate goal of touching all people with God's message. We are so prone to lose sight of people that God gives us this sensitivity to help keep us on track. That's the role of compassion. Keep us moving forward to the ultimate goal. No, it doesn't ultimately solve the problem. But if there's no compassion on the part of those with the ultimate answer towards those who need it, it'll never get there. Because you just won't care. So here's what compassion ought to teach us to see. The very things that Jesus saw. The helpless and the harassed. The hungry. The sick. The infirmed. The indebted. The grieving. The outcast. The abused. The broken. And the repentant. Now, would you like some encouragement? Many of our ministries are direct reflections of this kind of compassion. We have collective answers to these things. People who are harassed and helpless and people drowning in debt. We have a benevolence ministry because God has blessed His church in the last few years with some very significant funds channeled specifically for that. We've been able to help some people in some significant situations of great debt and difficulty because God blessed us that way. It's wonderful. And we have a group of people who take this very seriously and follow it with great fiscal responsibility and have been able to help a lot of people. 
people who are sick. We have deacon's care ministry and pastoral ministry that reaches out and cares for people when they're sick. And some of you have been a part of that as you've taken people to appointments or visited people or been a part of making meals when people need them. It's important. It's essential. It's great. Many of you have participated in that. The hungry, we have a food pantry. That food pantry just continues to get all kinds of traffic. And we're helping feed our community through that simple gesture of just picking up a few extra things and bringing them by and putting them in the receptacles there. People who mourn great loss. We have a Stephen ministry at this church. These are people that do hours and hours of training to be great listeners. And they're available here at this church. You'll see them with little blue tags on. They're available anytime. You see somebody with one of those? They're trained to listen and to pray. And you can grab them any old time and say, hey, listen, I got something It's important because we need to be ready for that. People have been abused and taken advantage. Again, our Stephen ministry, but then our, also our ministry partners like Family, Family Promise. These people that we're having as guests this week are people that have... They're, they're victims of circumstances. Some of them of their own doing, some of, many of them not. So we can offer them this kind of compassion. It's remarkable how, how well this is working. As I said, great turnover, which means these people are finding permanent housing. Market Street Mission, caring for people who are really in some tough straits. First Choice Women's Resource Centers, and so it goes. And then the repentant and the broken. Again, pastoral care, opportunity after every service. Someone needs to talk to somebody. They can find what they need. So that's our collective answer, and that's encouraging. That's good. What about our personal answer? Isn't this a little too big? Isn't our mission statement of touching all people with God's message a little unrealistic? It's not too big. It's inclusive. It means that we invest beyond ourselves, that scope. That means that we know that we, we can't do it all ourselves. So we partner with other organizations and we invest in people who work all around this world trying to do the same thing. But then for ourselves personally, it means seeking those around us that God is working in, seeking to touch all people. So here comes the prayer factor again. Lord, where are you working so I can join you? So that from compassion that you would build in me, I can move to a conversation compassion towards people and conversation with those people. God sends us to people and that means a couple of obvious things. This kind of compassion and this kind of conversation. So let's talk. The conversation is not about making a point that is proven true. as much about caring for a person who could be transformed by that truth. Don't try and win an argument. Try and make a friend. And when you do, then Deet helped us by making our tool just a little bit better. Everybody walks up to somebody and says, hey, how you doing? Oftentimes we don't want an answer. Well, get yourself ready for the answer. No matter what the answer is, good, bad, indifferent. So tell me more. Isn't that a great little tool? Tell me more. What have you just said? You've said you're important to me and I'm ready to listen. That's an act of love right there. Tell me more. And then, in that act of listening, you will see 
that there's going to be a way and there's going to be a time and there's going to be a moment when you get to say, did you know that? Now say it with me. God loves us. And he's taken the first step to make things right. And he wants us to help him change the world. And in time, he will fix everything. Now maybe, maybe you're not going to say all of them. Maybe you're going to pick one of them. Maybe it's you just watch, pray, and you'll see that God is going to give you the opportunity out of a heart of compassion praying to be and see the world like Jesus does, you're going to be given an opportunity to have a conversation. And many. Because you're willing to say, so tell me more. And you're going to listen. And then when the moment's right, you're going to be able to say, did you know? And they're going to say, how do you know that? And you're going to have memorized the other side of the tool so you've got a little verse. And Anyway, here we go. Let's go. Let's share love. Let's share love. Let's extend forgiveness. Let's seek purpose. Let's offer hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a very practical, real, understandable example in your Son, Jesus Christ, of how we are to see people. Forgive us for our selfishness and with the many times that we're only consumed with ourselves as the most important people in your eyes. Help us to see people as you see them. And help us to make this journey that you put us on so much more about people than things. So, more about, so much more about sharing your love than pursuing our desires. And would you fill us to do that? That many people might become followers of you as we are. In Jesus' name, amen.